And Exodus chapter 13, verse 1, is we're going to start reading here in just a couple of minutes. But here's where we are inside of the book of Exodus. We have made this really significant turn at this point in this book. Uh, the people of Israel, the Hebrew children, are now free from Egypt. They are no longer slaves. And they are appointed east toward the Red Sea in the Sinai Peninsula. And we've gone through all of this, this tumult of uh, Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues and so forth. And now they are free. So from here on out, we get some other things, some fascinating things. Again, continuing this notion of how God is building and shaping his people, taking them from slaves to a nation and the people of God. So in our passage of scripture this morning, as God frees them, what he is going to do, he's going to give them a law about the consecration of the firstborn. God is going to promise them the land again. And then he's going to talk again about the feast of unleavened bread. So the setting inside of this passage this morning, I think, is so important for us. They have just survived the night of the death of the firstborn. And now God is going to make a claim on their firstborn. It's a curious passage of Scripture if we read this by ourselves in the middle of the night, so we're getting our devotionals in before the day is done, this is one of those passages where we think, you know, somewhere inside of our brains, eh, this is one of those Old Testament passages that's just sort of fit inside of the Old Testament. I'll read it, I'll listen to it, but then I'll keep moving. What we're going to discover is that God has a lot of really powerful things to say to us that still belong to us in this passage of Scripture. It's curious. So what is God up to? It shouldn't be a surprise to us again that God tells his people to remember all of these things. Now think with me very quickly about what really the last two or three chapters have been like. The night of the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, was described in one, maybe two verses. We've led up to it, we've talked about it, but the event itself happened very quickly. But it took an entire chapter, essentially, before that to prepare the people of God for that moment, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then it occurs, and it occurs very quickly. Then the people of Israel are essentially pushed out by Pharaoh and by their neighbors. And now before we get to the rest of the wilderness wanderings, we slow down, and God gives his people these laws again. God is explaining to them why it happens before it happens. Then it happens. Then after it's over, God reminds his people, this is why this happened. As a matter of just word count, why this happened is more important than the event itself. Does that make sense? So it's a curious two or three chapters of scripture when we think about the drama of the night of the death of the firstborn. So it's not at all surprising that we're going to read again that God tells his people to remember what has happened. They need to remember and pass along how God has displayed his power for their good, how he has judged evil and saved them, sent them out into the wilderness. There's a phrase that's going to show up four times in our passage of Scripture this morning, that God has shown his strong arm on their behalf. So he's reminding them and he wants them to continue to remember and remind the next generation. So in our passage of Scripture, a couple of things to keep in mind as we get going. 
And the first is this. So everyone God saves belongs to him. Everyone God saves belongs to him. God redeemed them. This is the language in the book of Exodus. It's language in the New Testament as well. But God redeemed his people means he bought them back for himself. A price was paid. Egypt owned them in this sense. The price was paid of the death of the firstborn. And so God has redeemed them. They are now his. And everyone that God saves belongs to him. And we're going to get to flesh out that thought a little bit this morning. And then this, Israel is never allowed to forget the price of their freedom. They're never allowed to forget what that night cost. We're going to discover that with every birth, every human birth inside of a family, every birth of part of the livestock, with every birth, there will be sacrifice and there will be remembrance for all generations. Their memory will be one of thankful response over and over about what God has done for them. And this still concerns us. This still concerns us. We're also not allowed to forget the price of our freedom. We're not allowed to forget the price of what it cost to free us from the slavery of sin. And we're not allowed to forget who paid for our salvation as well. So friends, let's go ahead and begin reading. We're in Exodus chapter 13, the first couple of verses. Exodus chapter 13, verse 1. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. Consecrate to me all of the firstborn. They are holy to me. They belong to me. So you now are going to go through this process with every birth of the firstborn to consecrate them to me, to remind yourselves of how they belong to me. This is going to include children. This is going to include livestock and animals. And this is something I love about the Old Testament. One of you might think, well, which animals? Later on, God's going to say which animals and which animals you don't sacrifice. It's great. The Old Testament covers all of its bases with stuff like this. But to consecrate with every firstborn birth, to consecrate is for that family to recognize again that they belong to God, to recognize again that they belong to God. And because it is a process of sacrifice, it is also going to be a public recognition amongst the rest of the family of God that the firstborn belongs to God, that we remember that night in Egypt when God redeemed his people and he freed us. So it is this public recognition over and over. The first will be given to God. And this becomes an Old Testament pattern. It's not just a matter of this particular moment or this commandment, but it becomes an Old Testament pattern because this idea is something that God's people are expected to celebrate, to enact over and over again in all kinds of ways. So we're seeing specifically that the firstborn belong to God. The children themselves will be redeemed. They will be bought back. 
This is the notion, and God's going to explain this a little bit later on in chapter 13, but they belong to me. You're not going to sacrifice them to me. You're going to sacrifice something else in their stead, and as such, you will buy them back, and they will be yours, but you will be reminded they are consecrated to me. So they are redeemed by the sacrifice of another. And it's not just the firstborn, but there is this thought, this truth, in a lot of the rest of the Old Testament, we read this language in the New as well, that the first fruits belong to God. I mean, imagine taking the firstborn of your flock or of your herd. That firstborn is the promise of what is yet to come. We've had a healthy birth, and this, uh, this kid, this goat, this sheep, is healthy and strong, and this is the promise of the perpetuation of my flock, my herd. And God says, it's mine. You take that, the first one, and it symbolizes the best and symbolizes the promise of the future, and he says, and then you sacrifice that to me. You give that to me. And so it's the first fruits, not just the firstborn. It's the first of the herd. It's the first of the crop. It's the first of the financial gain. Friends, this is such an important thought when it comes to the way you and I interact with God, with the blessings and things that he has given us. God does not say, you know, once you feel like you have your flock and your herd and your vine and your field in good shape, man, you just harvest that. You take those sheep and those goats. You do what you need to with them. And if you have anything left over at the end, go ahead and give me one of those. That's not the commandment. The commandment is the first thing is mine. It's not the final sheave of wheat at the end of the harvest that belongs to me. It's the first one you gather that belongs to me. It is a constant reminder that God gave us all of this, and so the best goes back to him. Israel will be forever reminded. That's the notion. They will be forever reminded that we are free because of God's power and because of God's love. And so we're going to give him the first every single time. Not if I've got $2 left over at the end of the month in my budget, I'm gonna go ahead and shovel that to God. The first that I am given belongs to him to remind me that all of this has been given to me by God. You go to a passage of scripture like Deuteronomy chapter 26, and Moses makes that connection directly, that the firstborn is consecrated to God because he saved you from Egypt. It all belongs to him. So the firstborn, the first fruits, and then as a matter of memory, imagine with all of the families of the nation of Israel and all of those livestock, how often this is happening. So it's going to happen constantly inside of the nation of Israel. So it's a matter of repetition. It's a matter of memory for them. And as this happens, God is making a claim on all of the generations of the Hebrew children. Every firstborn belongs to me. So God is making his claim on the future of the nation of Israel as well. Not just that next generation born in the wilderness, but all of the rest. So every generation is going to perform this same sacrifice. With every first birth and with every harvest, God's claim on his people, 
God's power on his people's behalf is going to be remembered by them. In fact, we make our way through Scripture, and there's one particular moment that sticks out to you and to me, because Jesus was Mary and Joseph's firstborn. They present him to the temple with the sacrifice of the consecration of the firstborn. They go through the process as well. Hundreds, 1,500 years, 1,400 years after God gives Moses this law, the people of Israel are still doing this. In fact, when you read about that moment in Luke chapter 2, it's in verse 23, it cites the Old Testament law of the consecration of the firstborn. Luke 2.23 says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy or shall be consecrated to the Lord. So Jesus himself is produced to the temple and the sacrifice is made for the firstborn. And God is buying back this language of redemption is throughout this notion, throughout this commandment, throughout Scripture about how God works with his people. God bought back his people out of Egypt through the death of the firstborn. So why are we talking about the consecration of the firstborns through the death of the firstborn that they have been redeemed? And now every parent will redeem their firstborn through this sacrifice. God has already used this kind of language. He's talked to Moses about this very thing. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, God told Moses, I will redeem my people from the nation of Egypt. I'm going to buy them back. There will be a cost involved. Earlier on in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God is telling Moses very early on, here's what you're going to tell Pharaoh. You're going to tell him this. Israel is my firstborn son. And Pharaoh, if you do not let my people go, I will take your firstborn son. So God is laying this groundwork for the nation of people, for the nation of Israel to understand how God is doing this, why God is doing this, and how they're going to remember this generation after generation. So in two very quick verses, we're introduced to this topic of the consecration of the firstborn. The story continues and God folds in these other promises, the promise of making it to the promised land, and then the issue of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the text continues like this, now in Exodus chapter 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all of your territory. You shall tell your son on that day if it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth." For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as it is appointed from year 
to year. So there it is again, and this has been really important over the last two or three chapters. Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, in which you were given freedom, in which you were saved from slavery. So he mentions the the Feast of Unleavened Bread again. They will remember this day by keeping that feast. In this month, it's a spring month, the month of Abib or Aviv. And God begins now to talk more about the land that he has promised to give them through their fathers. This is the land, he says, of the Canaanites and all of these other groups that are there. This promise goes all the way back to the beginning of God's story with his people. We make it all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 12 as God begins to talk to Abram to call him out of the land and out of his family and to begin to journey and to journey to the land that God will show him. I'll show you when I get there. That's, that's great news. Get up and leave. Uh, take your family and start journeying. Where? I'll tell you when you get there, right? So this is Abram's story as God leads him through the wilderness. But this is part of the promise. Genesis chapter 12, verses one and two. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is all part of the larger story of I'm going to show you the land and I'm going to give it to you, meaning I'm going to give it to the nation that you will become. I'm going to give it to your children. So Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, they don't inherit the land, but the family gets started. They've made their way into Egypt, and now God is fulfilling this promise, bringing them back into the land of Canaan. It's time for that land to be cleared out of its evil and of its rebellion and being given back to the people of God. And so the memory of this, the repetition of the memory of this, is supposed to create several things inside of the people of God. It's part of the cycle of their relationship with him. It does specific things for them. It does specific things for us. The memory of an event like this is supposed to create something like gratitude in the hearts of God's people. Forgetfulness in the story of Exodus is always associated with ingratitude. So we go all the way back to Exodus chapter 1. And uh, Pharaoh uh, passes away and a new Pharaoh arose who did not remember Joseph. He had forgotten all that God had done through Joseph and he begins to oppress the nation of Israel. So that forgetfulness became ingratitude. But, But remembrance now becomes a matter of gratitude to remember and to be thankful for what God has done for us. So we do this with communion. We do this Sunday mornings. We do this when we gather together to build this habit of gratitude inside of us for all that God has done. Remembrance also creates faith. It encourages faith within us. If we are in the habit of explicitly recalling the things that God has done for us, that helps tremendously as we move forward into a that we do not understand and that we do not control. It's easy for us to look back 
and to look through the eyes of trust or of faith and say, yes, God did this, God did this. I was worried, I was anxious, I did not know what was going to happen. God apparently knew what was going to happen and so he took care of it. God took care of all of this in the past and when we are able to do that, it is so much easier for us then to look into the future and go, you know what, I have no clue how any of this is going to fit together, but God knows. So I put faith in him in the past, if that makes sense. If I can do that, then it's easier for me to look forward into the future, to walk into the wilderness, the desert, for they don't know how long, and say, I'm going to be able to put my trust in God with every step I take. And I say stuff like this because I know, I know that there's somebody in this room that needs to hear it. Some of you are thinking, who? And the answer is me. <laughs> the answer is me. God's going to be able to take care of it. Because the strong arm of God has been shown on behalf of his people over and over and over. Why would he stop now? We've sung this kind of thing this morning. We've prayed this kind of thing this morning. So we remember because it exercises the gift of faith inside of us. Trust in God. God is also, remember, building a nation. He's building people that look like him. They are not supposed to look like Egypt. They're not supposed to look like the Canaanites. They're not supposed to look like the Edomites and the Moabites. And all of these nations are going to run into on the way. They don't look like them. They look like him. So he's building his process, his moral pattern, his social pattern into them so that they truly become the nation that he has called them to be. And he says at the end of that passage that we read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and he says, in this law, my word is going to be a sign for you. It's going to be a sign on your hand. It's going to be a sign between your eyes. And, and to this day, observant or orthodox Jews, when they pray or when they worship, you may have seen some of this before, they will wear those leather pouches that are on their typically right hands and wrapped around their arms or across their forehead and inside of that pouch is written part of the Torah or specific pieces of the Torah and the law. They keep the law of God there. The point of doing that is not to look like that or just do that. The point of that is what God says next in this passage, so that my law will be in their mouth, so that it actually will be inside of them. It will be actually something that they speak and know and learn how to live. And so it is with us. We still carry these kinds of reminders with us. We wear crosses around our neck. We carry our Bibles with us. We wear bracelets. We, we do things, these things in our homes to remind us of passages of Scripture. So we do these things as well in our own ways. But again, the point is not just to have that Scripture on the wall or the bracelet on the wrist, but so that the word of the Lord will be in our mouths that we are so saturated with the word of God, we are so knowledgeable of it, we are so in love with it, that when we talk, what comes out of us is the word of God. What comes out of us is the goodness and the truth of who God is. That's the point. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, as Paul is talking to this young pastor, he reminds them of the, of the importance of the Word of God and the kind of power that it has. Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. A critical piece of this law, God says, is to remember the word of the Lord and to let it form you and shape you. Long before we get to Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, long before we get to the book of Leviticus or even the second half of the book of Exodus and all of these laws, God says, my law needs to be on your mouth. So we remind ourselves of it over and over and over. Well, the passage continues, and God continues to talk about this notion of the consecration of the firstborn right on the heels of the night of the 10th plague. So back in Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. So you don't sacrifice the donkey, you sacrifice a lamb in his place. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck, which is interesting. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? We've read of this kind of conversation three times in the last two chapters now. When one of your children eventually asks you, why do we do this? What does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt." Consecration of the firstborn, they are the Lord's. They belong to him. The nation of the people belong to God. The firstborn of the animals will be sacrificed, unless it's a donkey. But you don't get out of sacrifice if all you have are donkeys. You then have to buy a sacrifice and redeem it with the sacrifice of a lamb. The donkeys are very useful. They're also unclean animals. You can't sacrifice that before God. The point is nobody gets out of this. Nobody is free from this law. However your herds and flocks and fields work, this law belongs to you. And the firstborn belongs to me, God says. Something else interesting about this text that to us in context as we read this, we might think, well, that's kind of obvious, but it is incredibly important that we see another angle of this particular law. God is teaching his people, we don't sacrifice children. This is interesting because the sacrifice of children in their world and the land that they're headed to, the land of the Canaanites, 
is far more common than you and I might imagine. The actual sacrifice of children to these pagan gods, they would have seen it in Egypt. They will see it in the wilderness. They will see it in the nations that they deal with. They will see it with the Canaanites in the promised land itself. So much so that as the history of God's people continues, God's prophets come back to his people and will say things like, stop sacrificing your children to demons. One of the gods that is specifically associated with in the Old Testament is the demon Moloch. And you can look this up. You can find how this works. And these idols of Moloch would be built out of iron or bronze or brass. And his arms would be held out front front, uh, over a fiery pit. And families would come and they would lay their infant children on those burning arms until those children writhed and fell into the pit and died. And they thought this was the right thing to do with their children. In fact, one of the greatest sins committed in the history of the nation of Judah is that one of their kings, Manasseh, started sacrificing his children to Molech. And that's when God says in the Old Testament, Judah's gone. You're going into exile. This is one of the ways that the people of God stick out as significantly different from the rest of the world from the very beginning of the people of God. We don't do this. We save children instead. We fight against the temptation that the world still has to sacrifice so many children. The Gazette Telegraph ran an article just a couple of days ago. Some of the stats are in with the laws that are now in the state of Colorado with the encouragement that is had in the state of Colorado to have abortions, that we've had more children killed so far in the state of Colorado this year than since the year 1985. As people driving here from neighboring states where it's illegal or difficult to get, it's an abortion sanctuary state now. Friends, the world desperately wants to kill children. It's a weird, demonic thing. But the people of God have been different from the very beginning. So this is another important lesson that God is teaching his people. You're not going to look like Egypt. You're not going to look like the Canaanites. You're going to belong to me. And that conversation is repeated for the third time in this kind of chunk of Scripture in the last couple of chapters. A child is going to ask, why do we do this sacrifice? And the parent has the answer that reminds them of the death of the firstborn and their exodus from Egypt. God's strong hand, his strong arm, is acting on their behalf, stronger than, greater than Egypt and everything else. And the generations of God's people will forever remember the price of their freedom. They will forever remember the death of the firstborn. In this language, a law like this, you know, we may feel like, well, it's a little bit buried here in the middle of the book of Exodus. It shows up in other places in the Torah, and we might be tempted to think, well, this belongs to history for us, but it still concerns us. It still bears upon the people of God to understand this 
and to remember this in all of the right ways. So the language doesn't stay in the Old Testament. The firstborn is sacrificed because, uh, or redeemed because it symbolizes the first and the best. And God has given us this, so we're going to memorialize that fact. We're going to remember that God has given us all that we have, so the very first and the best belongs to him. So we will thank him first and foremost for all that he has given. And we will remember his might exercised on our behalf and how he has saved us. And this sacrifice becomes part of the story of the church itself. The reason we sit here on Sunday mornings. It's part of the story of how you and I are redeemed. I think one of the things that we're discovering as we sort of make our way through Exodus is how what happens inside of this book is just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of Jesus Christ. Of what he has done for us and how he has done it and how you and I respond to this. It was beautiful to watch that with the story of the Passover. And now with a law like the consecration, the redemption of the firstborn. This is language the New Testament grabs on purpose so that we can understand, again, who Jesus really is and what he has done for every single one of us. We see this in the New Testament, clearly, and it's an incredible thing. Jesus is the firstborn over all things. Speak of the firstborn, the highest, the greatest, the first, the one who is preeminent, Jesus is the firstborn over all things. He alone is creator. He alone is God in flesh. And he alone is the redeemer of his children. So this language that God uses with Moses to describe that night, to describe the consecration of the firstborn and the sacrifices they will offer for generations, comes to a head in the person of Jesus Christ as he redeems his church. Listen to some of this language in Colossians chapter 1. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whether you see it or you don't, all of it has been created by and for the firstborn, Jesus Christ. All things were created through him and for him. This is the preeminence of the firstborn, Jesus Christ. So being crucified, Jesus is the willing sacrifice of the firstborn. This is incredible. And it is that sacrifice that redeems the rest of us, buys us back from slavery and sin for God. Crucified, he's the willing sacrifice of the firstborn. Rising from the dead, he becomes our firstborn brother who defeated death. This is the role that Christ, the firstborn, plays. We hear this a few verses later in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And it's because of this that we are redeemed. This is why it happens. This is how it happens. This is how we are redeemed. We go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, put it like this. And this is just, this is a really cool passage of Scripture. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The writer of Hebrews is grabbing everything from the book of Exodus and saying, this is it. This is our salvation. This is what Jesus has done for us. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is also the sacrifice that redeems who? the firstborn of God's people. That's incredible. This dual role that Christ plays, God incarnate upon the cross, walking out of the tomb three days later, the firstborn over all things, and he is preeminent. But then the writer of Hebrews says, but look, there's something else to this. You and I have gathered with the family of God. It's like the heavenly Jerusalem where the angels are celebrating. And this is the congregation of the firstborn of the Lord. You have been bought back by the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He is our firstborn brother, the firstborn over all creation. And he is the sacrifice who redeems his people. So friends, there are things for us because of this passage of scripture and the way that Jesus is talked about, the way these things point to our Messiah, there are things for us to keep in mind, to realize how this still belongs to us. And the first is one of those thoughts that we brought up early on. Everyone God saves belongs to him. Everyone God saves belongs to him. The continual reminder of the sacrifice of Christ, of the mighty hand of God on behalf of his children who are lost and powerless in their slavery reminds us that he bought us for himself. We are his. I am no longer my own. This is such a critical, critical thought for us. We are no longer our own, but we belong to him. I am saved by God in the sacrifice of Jesus, and I am his now. I love this passage in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, this is the perspective of the follower of Jesus Christ, someone who has been redeemed. It is no longer I who live. 
It is now Christ who lives in me. I belong to him. I am his now. Then I think we see this clearly as well. We can never forget the price of our salvation. Israelite families would have engaged in this sacrifice over and over, and they would have seen the other families, their neighbors, engaging in these sacrifices over and over. It is a constant reminder of the price that has been paid for our salvation. Do you know how much you are worth to him? Do you know how much you are worth to the creator, the universe, the creator of all things, who knows all the stars and the galaxies and every atom, every molecule, every motion in the universe, this God who is above and greater than all things, still somehow in his sovereignty, care, and love cares for you so much that he sent his only son to be the price for your salvation. How much are you worth to him? Well, how much did it cost him? the precious shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so it's our job to constantly remember, to recall the value, the price of our salvation. And this story belongs to us. This pattern belongs to us. I want to finish with this thought. We are saved so that everyone everywhere will always know about our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a public thing that we do. This is something that we do in the open. This is something that belongs to us in the public square, that we belong to this Jesus Christ, that we recall his sacrifice, that we show up with the body of Christ, that we behave this way, think this way, live this way as a constant reminder to the rest of the world of who our Savior is, who we are becoming like, this Jesus, instead of the rest of the world. I just found this thought fascinating. I ran across this question written by a Jewish scholar. He was writing about this particular passage of scripture. I like the way that he put it. I'm going to have to read it a couple of times to make sense of it, but here's what he said, and he's thinking about the people of Israel. They're on the other side, and they're starting to... Um, they're starting to observe the consecration of the firstborn. And so all these sacrifices are happening and they're eating this unleavened bread every year and their children are asking them, why do we do this? And he puts it like this. Are we eating unleavened bread and telling our children because God took us out of Egypt or did God take us out of Egypt so we would eat unleavened bread and tell our children? Are we eating unleavened bread and telling our children because God took us out of Egypt or... Did God take us out of Egypt so we would eat unleavened bread and tell our children? The answer is yes. <laughs> we remember all of that, but God saved us so that we would do this together, so that we would tell our children about this, so that we would tell our neighbors about this. We do this so that everyone everywhere will know something about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Why has God saved me? So that I can do this over and over and over. 
so that my family will know, my kids will know, my friends will know, my coworkers will know, the people will know who my Savior is. When God gives them the land, they will remember. Everywhere they go throughout the generations, they will observe this over and over and over. And that's what the church does now. We do this so the world will see, so that the world will know. The final thought is a familiar one, I think, to all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Oh, my God.